Two weeks ago we saw in Genesis 17 that the Lord visited Abraham after some time, 13 years. Uh, Ishmael had been born 13 years ago and Abraham wanted Ishmael to be his heir. And the Lord said, no, I promise to bless you and Sarah and I will bless you and Sarah. You too will have a child of promise, Isaac. These promises were frankly too good to be true for Abraham. They were miraculous, supernatural. God was promising to Abraham the impossible. And he laughed. Remember, that's the word laughter from which we get Isaac's name. He said, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And in today's text, no time clearly has passed. Maybe Abraham's, you know, nursing his wounds after the procedure he had. Could be the next day, as some ancient commentators thought. Now, this promise that came to Abraham comes to Sarah. Or at least uh, as directly as, as the ancient world could have. She's standing there in the tent. And the angel says, where is Sarah? I have a message for her. I will surely return this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And this time it's Sarah's turn to laugh. Yeah, right. This old woman withered and an old man's going to have a child. So brothers and sisters, the the theme of these texts, these these verses is laughter. Isaac. And, And what does that have to do with the gospel? What does that have to do with our faith? It's this. That the gospel is about a miraculous, supernatural act of God. The gospel is too good to be true. And so that's what this text reminds us of and anchors us really as believers. So we're going to look at sort of the three paragraphs that we find in in our English translations here. First, Abraham's hasty hospitality. And then Sarah's laughter. And finally, the Lord's gospel promise. So please uh, stand if you are able for the reading of scripture, Genesis chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham ran quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, and took a calf, tender and good, gave it to a young man, who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where's Sarah, your wife? He said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me in our prayer for illumination, which we can find in our uh, bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Well, our title today is, is Anything Too Hard for the Lord? And while we didn't have an outline to print in the bulletin, uh, there's a blank space there. And if you uh, care to take notes, you might outline these three broad points. First, Abraham's hasty hospitality. Uh, second, Sarah's laughter. And third, the Lord's gospel promise. And before I turn to each of these three elements, there are, are two things that I think are worth highlighting as a bit of background and introductory material. And the first is the context of this story. Uh, the story of Sarah's laughter, Isaac's name is crucial to the nature of the gospel. And the context here is key. I've already glanced before I read back to Genesis 17. When the Lord came 13 years, after 13 years of of relative silence. And He confirmed His promise to Abraham. He gave him the sacrament, the rite of circumcision. Abraham was going to have children with his wife. And that circumcision would remind him of that promise each and every day. And so here we are. Abraham and Sarah, you remember in chapter 17, received new names. And what that name symbolized was that Abraham was not just going to be the father of a nation, but of many nations. It was a multiplying of God's promise. And the key was that Sarai got a new name as well. Sarah. She would be the mother. She would be a princess. So chapter 17 was crucially after the birth of Hagar of Ishmael with Hagar in chapter 16, where Sarah had given up. Sarai had said, The Lord has not given me a child. She was bitter. In chapter 17, God says, No, I will fulfill my promise to you. But now as we look forward, we read the final paragraph of this text, um, talking about the men going forward and looking down to Sodom and Gomorrah. One of the things that's interesting about this story of Abraham and Sarah and the laughter is that it occurs, uh, it's like a two-panel painting 
If you ever go to the National Gallery of Art and you see these medieval works of art that hang above altars in the church, they were diptychs or triptychs. They have two or three panels. And so the panel of the angels visiting Abraham is one story. And it's set alongside in contrast with the angels' upcoming visit to Lot in Sodom. You probably remember some aspects of that story. It gets pretty ugly in the city. Lot shows some sort of hospitality. In fact, he offers to sacrifice his virgin daughters for his visitors' comfort and preservation. So he's sort of hospitable. But there's a contrast here. Not only between Abraham and Lot, between God's redeemed people and those who aren't doing so hot at the moment, between the life of faith and the life of not-so-solid faith, But there's a contrast between God's gospel and blessing and His law and cursing. So we want to keep uh, that in mind. This um, really that is part of a broader overall theme. That we should never forget how important judgment is as a theme to the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 6 through 9, three chapters. 6, 7, 8, 9. That's four chapters. I can count. Are given to the flood. That's a big chunk of text when you're riding on animal skins, right? That's precious ink and parchment. And then we have the Tower of Babel. And now we have chapter 17, 18, 19. The story of Isaac's birth is intertwined with this judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So we want to keep that before us and uh, the passage of time. The second introductory aspect, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, is is there's this rather mysterious visit here. Abram sees three men, but it's called the appearance of the Lord. So we have singular and plural. The Lord appeared, these three men appeared. In in chapter 19, verse 1, we read that the two angels came to Sodom. So one of the three stands off the Lord and sends angels into the city of Sodom. Sometimes Abraham uses the first person, sometimes he uses uh, first person singular, sometimes plural. So there's a lot of confusion about who are these three angels? What do we do with angelic beings in the Bible? And I think the clearest thing is that the Lord himself is visiting and blessing and speaking to Abraham and Sarah. So the Lord uh, is Yahweh. It's God appearing in a human form. And most Christian commentators have said, this is the Son of God who would take on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, appearing temporarily in the form of human flesh. So Abraham is visited by Christ. And he has accompanying him these angels. And again, the contrast plays here. The Lord comes and visits with Abraham. The Lord has a conversation with Abraham. The Lord reveals his plans to Abraham. Abraham negotiates and intercedes with the Lord for the good of Sodom. Next week, we'll see in our text. And for the good of Lot. The Lord delivers Lot for the sake of Abraham's prayers. But the Lord does not visit Lot. His two angels are sent to that task. So these three men come. And the emphasis of these first eight verses in our passage today, the first paragraph in our English Bible, is Abraham's incredible hospitality. You know, if this was a Yelp review for a restaurant, you would say the service and the food was amazing. It is hasty. It is selfless. It is abundant. And it is seemingly well rehearsed. Twice we are told that Abraham runs. 
Uh, three times we come across this adverb, quickly. Quickly, he goes to get Sarah. Quick, make some cakes. He tells the servant to prepare the calf quickly. So everyone from the major D who greets the guests, to the chef, to the kitchen, to the servers, everyone gets five stars. He washes their feet. He begs them to stay. He calls himself their servant. And as the feast is spread out, curds and milk and the calf, Abraham stands by under the tree while they eat, waiting on their every need. The food is abundant. It is tasty. It is the finest, a young and tender calf. This is the language, brothers and sisters, of sacrifice of the tabernacle. The finest flour. This is the language with which we know that the choice flour was used to bake the bread, the showbread, for the altar. Uh, the volume, asiya. I'm not going to get into numbers. It's always a little bit muddy. But it's like a barrel. <laughs> he says, take a barrel of flour for each of our guests and start baking. And don't stop till I tell you. Maybe bread, maybe cakes, maybe baking, all sorts of stuff. A day of baking. Here's the amazing thing. Abraham doesn't know these people. The text implies that these are strangers. Abraham's hospitality is the centerpiece of this story. And it becomes a thing of legend among the Hebrew people. And we know that such hospitality is is legend in the Middle East. But that is in part because of stories like this. Do you know why Middle Easterners are such wonderful hosts? It's because of Abraham. It's because, in part, of the Holy Scriptures. And it formed and shaped the unique culture of the Jewish people. It comes down to us to this day. And in the time of the New Testament, the author of the Hebrews alludes to something well known, alludes to this story, and others like it in the Old Testament when he writes, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hospitality was essential to the mission of the New Testament church. Paul and other apostles, preachers, had to be cared for. There were no inns. And the hospitality to strangers is a little redundant because the word hospitality means to love strangers. This isn't, you know... The Southern Living Hospitality, where you put on a really fancy dinner for your boss, because, you know, you might get a promotion next year. Notice what Abraham says in verse 5. Refresh yourselves, and our ESV says, since you've come to your servant. There's some causal relationship there. And the King James offers this fuller sense that's a good, valid translation. For therefore are ye come to your servant. For this reason you have come. One commentator says... For this is why you have come for your servant's benefit. Thanks for knocking on my door at two in the morning. You're doing me a real favor. Think of how you feel. Oh crap. I'm wearing my pajamas. You know, what's going on? I gotta answer the door, especially in our day and age, right? Are they stealing an Amazon package? What's going on? This is an opportunity for Abraham to be blessed by serving. Remember the promise had come to Abraham. He said, you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to the world. And Abraham has taken that to heart. This is not an unimportant or insignificant part of Abraham's faith or ours. This is the righteousness to which our text is referring. 
And the contrast here with what hospitality looks like in Sodom and Gomorrah in the coming chapters is very important. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day, in a city that is acidic and hostile to hospitality. It's not easy. We're scattered all over the place. But think about Abraham. When he, when he ran to his herd to get a choice tender calf, it wasn't like he was going to the store. He might have had to run 15 minutes. I don't know where he kept his herd. The Lord loved Abraham when he was a stranger, called him and blessed him. And that's the basis for this command, that Abraham might become like his heavenly father. And this scene, though it's just a snapshot, reveals a discipline and a practice of hospitality. The whole point is, he's doing this for strangers. He would have done this for any stranger. And for those of you who have worked in a restaurant or in a hospitality setting, you know that a lot of practice and discipline goes into this performance. Right? He goes to his wife. Quick, do it. They have three sias of fine flour sitting there. This is like Rosaria Butterfield, who's written the most guilt-inducing Christian book that I recommend. Um, the Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says, yeah, I just always make food for at least one extra person and set an extra place in my day. Every day. Like, that's kind of burdensome stuff. But she lives her life committed to strangers knocking on her door and feeding them. This is a well-practiced restaurant staff. They're like a pit crew at the races. And the feast he serves is like a wedding feast for three strangers. It's not for Abraham or for us an afterthought to the gospel, brothers and sisters. God's hospitality is the essence of the gospel. That's why it's the essence of the Christian life. Notice the promise later on. Uh, that will be um, in verse 19 and following, that will be our third point here. I'll return to this. For I have chosen him, the Lord says in verse 19. The verb here is, I've known him. This is the verb by which a husband knows his wife and they have children. I have known him that he, for this purpose, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. I've commanded him to live this blessed life so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I commanded him to live this way so I can bless him in that way of living. It's why the mission of the church is essential, not accidental to our identity or faith. We don't just have a prayer map and pray for those people out there. We are the mission of the church. On Sunday morning, When we greet guests and visitors, on Sunday afternoon in the middle of the week, maybe if we work near someone at church and grab a coffee, we care for each other, we pray for each other. This is Christian hospitality. Abraham is bearing gospel fruit, and so shall we. Hebrews makes it clear that this command is incumbent on all believers. And when we read the qualifications to be an officer in the church... None of these qualifications are anything that any Christian shouldn't be. But the fact of the matter is that many Christians lack these things, right? We're all works in progress. But if you're going to be a servant leader in Christ's church, an elder or a deacon or a minister, Paul writes, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. It's because this is a necessary component of the Christian life. 
And brothers and sisters, I look back over the last 15 years of ministry in this church, or my Christian life, 50 years, and my hospitality goes through seasons. It ebbs and flows, it flags, it strengthens. It's a goal of sanctification. But it's not an optional goal. It's a necessary goal. And so we see here a picture of faithful Abraham, Father Abraham, spreading a fine, abundant feast. And that brings us, that's the context. That meal, right? What a great picture. It's the context to hearing the voice of the Lord. It's the context to God coming into his midst. The next scene, uh, verse 9 here through verse 15, is a dialogue over the feast. But make no mistake, Sarah is the focus of this scene. And the word uh, Sarai, Sarah, has two names. K Sarai, Sarah. Uh, She has two names. And we see those names used about uh, 55 times in the Hebrew Bible. 55 times in the entire Hebrew Bible. And 10 of them are in this paragraph. (laughs) 20% of the time we read Sarah's name. It's here. You think she's front and center? She doesn't have to be referenced in every other verse. You could say she... Hebrew has a feminine pronoun. The emphatic repetition of what is, remember, a new name she has just been given is a sign that God cares for her as well. That she would be the mother of many nations alongside Abraham. That her obedience, her participation, her faith in the covenant was necessary as well. The meal prepared provides the context for the Lord to bring a blessing on this house. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Now, this isn't strange or unusual. This is probably perfectly normal Middle Eastern practice at this time. So we shouldn't, you know, view this through a heavily patriarchal lens. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. The Lord knew Sarah was listening. The Lord is speaking to Sarah. By the end of this passage, the Lord and Sarah are talking back and forth (laughs) through the tent door. Maybe she's still baking. Either way, she is the kitchen staff, and Abraham is the serving staff. And this prophetic message is the first time that Abram's antennas surely go up. How does he know my wife's name? Other than the fact that I called to her, perhaps. And and why is he bringing me this word of the Lord, this prophetic promise? God said, no, but Sarah, your wife. This was back in chapter 17. God had already said, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. But now that promise that had come to Abraham comes to Sarah herself. And we need, really, to slow down here and just pause and reflect on what this means, the significance, the profundity. In the context of a patriarchal society, we know in in many Islamic places of worship, male and female are separated to this day. We know that many scenes, it would be a radical thing for God to come and address the woman of the home. In the ancient world, it would have been shocking. That's why, in a sense, she has to be behind the tent to make this uh, palatable to the readers of this text. 
The direct address of the Lord to Sarah is profound in its inclusivity in ancient religion. The Bible is absolutely clear that man is made in the image of God, male and female. Both male and female, each on their own and both together reflect this image of God. And part of that image bearing, a big part, the very next line in Genesis chapter 1, is to be fruitful and have dominion. Both Adam and Eve are created in covenant with God, with a purpose and a design. Both of them are called to be obedient and faithful and to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And from the very first moment of human creation, the religion of the Bible has never relegated women to second class status. How profound it is that at a time where women were viewed as property or worse, where Abraham himself at the beginning of this story basically sells his wife into the Pharaoh's harem. He's going to do it again in a few chapters. How profound it is that the God of the universe, the eternal word, takes on human flesh and comes to dinner in Sarah's house and speaks a word of blessing and promise to her. Dear women of the Lord, do you see in Sarah how precious you are to your heavenly Father? How much the Lord loves you. How He cherishes you. Wives, This is the same loving regard that your husbands, in fact, do owe you each and every day. But we all fall short in our sin. Never forget that the Lord's love for you is whole and entire and perfect when ours fails. Now in Genesis 2, we hear a different perspective on creation. Where Adam, created first, receives the command and he teaches his wife. And Paul will point to this as showing that there is is an ordered relationship between husband and wife in the family unit, in the one flesh reality created by marriage. But yet, women are still essential and integral to this message. And what's the content of this profound message? That Sarah will have a child, finally, after 25 years of not always patiently waiting. Sarah had given up hope, 16.2. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She's blaming the Lord for her struggles. And yes, there's truth in this. God is responsible for giving her children. But he had a purpose in this trial. She laughs to herself when she hears this promise. Now this response, Sarah's laughter, I don't think is surprising. And I don't think the text condemns Sarah for laughing. I don't think the text condemns Abraham for laughing. I'm only surprised she didn't laugh out loud. She managed to keep it quiet. You know, she didn't guffaw. Moses emphasizes that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She was past menopause. Humanly, scientifically, materially speaking, she was no longer able to have children. God's promise comes to her at this stage of life as pure miracle. You wonder why he waited 25 years? Because he wanted to show that salvation is of the Lord. That our salvation, the gospel, is about a supernatural, miraculous act. I love how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 4. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham would rather settle for a natural faith. 
God, Ishmael's right here. Just bless me. It's easy. Forget about those big promises. I know, it's tough. You got busy. But Paul says in this passage that Abraham ultimately believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. God creates something from nothing. He gives life to dead people. There's a sense in which if you've never laughed at the gospel and said this is too good to be true, you don't believe it or you don't understand it yet. I'm not encouraging you to doubt your faith. I'm encouraging you to consider to weigh, to meditate on the profundity of God's kindness and love. If you've never thought the good news was too good to be true, then you haven't entirely understood what God has done for you. You haven't yet learned, in the words of our catechism, how great your sin and misery are. You haven't yet grasped that you've been delivered from all your sin and misery by no doing of your own, by faith alone. And you haven't yet learned the joy that we see here in Abraham living In gratitude for that great deliverance. God saw your darkened, selfish heart and He gave you life. He made you new creation. By a word of creation. And He will complete and perfect the work He has begun. And you didn't deserve a lick of it. That's why this story of Sodom and Gomorrah is set right beside this. That's what you deserve. Genesis is telling us again and again and again. You deserve the waters of the flood. You deserve the fire rained down from heaven. But God comes to you in blessing. There's a great play on words in here where Sarah says, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? This word for pleasure, delight, is the same word used to describe the Garden of Eden. It's Edna, Eden. Shall I have Eden again? You remember that in Eden that curse came upon Sarah. I will multiply your pain and child pain. In pain you shall bring forth children. And the Lord responds back to Sarah. And he sort of misquotes her here. But the Lord responds. Why did Sarah laugh and say. Shall I indeed bear a child? Shall I have pleasure? Shall I have Eden? Yes you shall have children. That's what I said. The curse of the fall. The curse on painful childbearing is reversed. In the gospel. Through laughter, through Isaac. As it is with so many women in the Bible. With Hannah, with Ruth, with Mary. For nothing, the angel tells Mary, will be impossible. With God quoting Genesis 18. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So the the point, the lesson of these two chapters, 17 and 18. The lesson of this whole twisting path of Abraham's faith. The 25 years, the delay. It's all to teach us this. That what God does for us in Christ is a supernatural miracle and a blessing. It's Lazarus, a dead man, stinking, rotting in a tomb, hearing the voice of his Savior. Lazarus, come forth and getting up and walking out. That's the gospel. And we should never forget that, dear brothers and sisters. And that brings us to our third and final point here. This sort of odd little paragraph where the guests go off and Abram's like, I'll walk you to the door. He walks out with them a little bit. And then we see the Lord's monologue, internal monologue. Clearly, this is the Spirit has revealed this to Moses, right? Moses didn't take notes here. I mean, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, I have loved him, I have known him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. You see, there are two paths, brothers and sisters. There's the path of righteousness and holiness, and there's the path of wickedness. And that way of wickedness leads to the flood. It leads to confusion and babble. It leads to fire and judgment. We see that path all over around us in the world, don't we? A lot of confusion in the world. God saves and redeems by faith alone a people out of that confusion. For righteousness and holiness that He might bless them. Our righteousness and holiness does not earn this blessing. This is the great mistake of thinking that we are God's partners in this work. No, we are joyous recipients and sharers in His blessing as our lives become transformed. So there's this contrast between Abraham and Lot which we'll explore in the coming weeks. Abraham's Blessing is a missionary blessing. Remember that he would be blessed and be a blessing. And in the next week's passage, in the latter half of chapter 18, we'll see Abraham negotiating, well, God's going to destroy Sodom, and my nephew Lot lives there, and, and my grandnieces, his daughters, are engaged to be married, maybe married to Sodomites. And I went to battle. I, I rescued the king of Sodom. He tried to recruit me. You see, we have Abraham living in and among the world here, but he prays for the world. He intercedes for the world. And at the end of that judgment, we read that God saved Lot for the sake of Abraham. And that points us to Christ. That points us to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when God saves us, He doesn't only make His blessing known to us. He gives us fresh eyes on our sin and His curse and the judgment that's coming. That's how we are saved, right? The law drives us to the gospel. We despise ourselves in our baptismal vows. We put all our confidence. We trust not in princes. We put all our confidence in the Lord. Because we know judgment is coming. We know this world is under judgment now. And God's wrath. We flee. We flee to Christ. It's not a horror show, this gospel. It's good news. But there is something to be feared. Facing a holy God without the merit of the blood of the Lamb. When we come here, we come to something better than the feast that Abram spread for those wandering strangers. We come to the feast of the body and blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The Son, the beloved Son that the Father sacrificed, that enemies and strangers, people who hate Him, through mud and rocks and stones at him could be at this table feasting. May the Lord Jesus Christ work through his spirit in our hearts to bring the new creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know our sin. We know it too well. We know our weakness. We are not the best of hosts. But your hospitality, Lord, in Christ is amazing. What amazing grace. Gather us at this table yet again this week. Feed us, nourish us, strengthen us. Because we know that the wedding supper of the Lamb, we know that the invitations have been sent forth. We pray that you would compel us and friends and neighbors in the world to gather and come and sit at that table, even as we sup today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.